As I've shared with many of you before, I have always loved Christmas. Probably most people here feel the same way, or you wouldn't be here. I love the decorations, I love the trees, I love the lights, I love most of the movies. I like some of the music, I like the kind we're doing here, there's other kinds I don't have a real love-hate relationship with Christmas music. Uh, I love the celebrations and the food and the traditions and the stockings and and the presents. Yeah, uh, I'm a fan. But very specifically, I have always loved Christmas Eve church services. And that was true even when I was not particularly a believer and when I really only came to church on Christmas and Easter. There's just something about the the, the, the low lights, the solemnity, the familiar verses, the sacred music that, that always spoke to me even when I didn't really know what it was saying. It was very powerful and, and special. Well, it's been 2,000 years since a baby was born to a young woman in a small town in the Middle East. And yet we're here tonight, all dressed up on a Thursday night, sweating in our seats. I certainly don't remember that from my childhood. (laughs) Why are we here? Why is Christmas so powerful and compelling all these centuries later? Now, I think we all know the Christmas story fairly well, even if it's just from Charlie Brown. And God bless Charlie Brown for making sure everybody knows the Christmas story in America. On that night that Jesus was born, an army, and I mean that literally because that's what a multitude of the heavenly host is. It's an army of angels showed up and burst into song celebrating. Why did they do that? A group of shepherds had a close encounter with these angels, and after they recovered from being almost completely terrified, they fell over themselves to hurry to Bethlehem to see this child, this one that had been laid in a food trough for animals. Why were they so fired up? A star was placed in the sky, and a a group of foreigners traveled for months and months to come and worship this baby. Why would they do that? The answer lies in the verses of the Christmas narrative themselves. And I don't have time, and I don't think anyone really wants me to read them all for you right here, right now. I haven't had dinner yet, and it's awfully warm. But I would encourage everyone to take the time this evening to read the narrative themselves. Ideally, do it with your families if you can. If not, read it on your own before you go to bed. It's a great tradition. It's something we've done for quite a while in our family. But even if you don't typically do it, just make it what we in the Burdett family call an instant tradition. You do it once, and it's a great idea, so you're going to do it for all time. That's an instant tradition in our family. So to get to the bottom of all those whys, I'm going to first read through just some key phrases from all those narratives, because, again, in the interest of not keeping you here for two hours, we're just going to highlight the key parts here that are going to begin to reveal the why of Christmas. And then we're going to dig into our main verses for tonight. And you may not have realized that those were Christmas verses. So just a few highlights from the Christmas story to refresh you. In Matthew 121, the angel told Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And that means the Lord is 
salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. In Luke 169, Zechariah praises God who has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In Luke 177, Zechariah prophesied that John the Baptist would go before Jesus to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. Luke 2.9 records that when the angel appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them. In Luke 2.11, the angel says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In Luke 2.14, the angel army sings, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke 2.20 records that after seeing Jesus, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And in Luke 2, 30-32, Simeon, who is filled with God's Spirit, celebrates, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Over and over again in these passages, we see two words repeated. Salvation and glory. These are the recurring and really dominating themes of the Christmas story. And they find beautiful expression in tonight's passage, which is where we'll find the answers to the great whys of Christmas. So I'll put it up on the screen. It's John chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And you may be thinking to yourself, Uh, I don't remember that part from Charlie Brown. But let me assure you, these verses are all about Christmas. Or perhaps more properly, Christmas is all about what's in these verses. This is why the angels were throwing a party in the middle of a field on that midnight clear, singing glory to God in the highest. This is why the shepherds were tripping over themselves to get to Bethlehem to see this thing which they had been told about. This is why rich guys from a faraway land spent at least three months of their life to bring gifts to a baby they'd never met. Now, the other thing you may be thinking about is, uh, what exactly does that say? And what does it have to do with Christmas? And so I'd like to spend the rest of our time tonight answering those two questions. Now, there are a couple things that I think it's important to know because this is a challenging passage if you are not spending a lot of time reading the book of John. And so I think it's important to understand. First, when John talks about the Word, he is talking about Jesus Christ. John spends the whole first part of chapter 1, and I wish we had a couple hours to talk about it because it's really cool. But he spends the whole first part of chapter 1 
unfolding and pointing progressively towards the person and presence of Jesus Christ. And he finally reveals it in verse 17, where he says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, remember that's what the glory of Jesus was full of, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word is Jesus Christ. Second, we need to know what John said at the very beginning of his book. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the concept of the Word, logos in Greek, had a long history in ancient Greek philosophy. It would have been familiar to those readers in the first century as a rational and organizing force of the universe. But what John is telling them is that while they were right in recognizing the power of the word, they had misunderstood and had not realized that the word was a person, not a force. And so what John is explaining to us is that the word, Jesus Christ, right? That's the first element there was there in the beginning. Now, these words are familiar to most of us. They're the first three words of the Bible. They're the launching point of creation. And so, what it's saying here is that Jesus was present at creation. He was not created. He was there before time began. He is eternal and ever-present. And Jesus, the Word, was with God And Jesus, the Word, is God. And everything that we see in the universe, all the galaxies, all the stars, all the planets were made through the Word, through Jesus Christ. And that's the background we need to understand tonight's verses, which explain why Christmas was such a big deal 2,000 years ago. But they also tell us why Christmas is still so powerful and meaningful to us today. And so we're going to go back through the verses. Verse 14 begins, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was eternal, and because the Word was God, for all of eternity the Word, Jesus, had been spirit, not flesh and bone like you and me. What John tells us is that the Word became flesh, And I will not bore you with a Greek grammar lesson, but the point is that he became flesh at a specific moment in time, and that moment was the first Christmas. On that night in Bethlehem, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Word, God himself, also became a human being, a tiny baby laid in a food trough. And when John says that he dwelt among us, The word dwelt is an interesting word because it literally describes pitching a tent in the original language. God pitched a tent amongst us. He dwelt among us in a tent. Now, over 1,400 years before Jesus was born, God had told Moses to build a very special tent called the tabernacle. And deep within that tent, God himself had been present dwelling with 
and leading and guiding and protecting the people of Israel for over 800 years. And deep within that tent, he was there. And, and as they traveled through the desert and would set up that tent in a new place, he would descend from heaven. His presence would go to that innermost part of the tent. And he would dwell among the people. But the nation of Israel went really, really bad. They sinned and sinned and sinned. And the Old Testament is a beautiful story about how patient God is, how loving God is, how much God wants things to be right with his people. But ultimately, after 800 years, he left Israel. He did not dwell among them any longer and turned them over to the consequences of their sin. And so God had not pitched his tent with people for nearly 600 years at this point. And that is why people got excited, because once again, on that first Christmas, God pitched his tent among us. But it was a very different tabernacle this time, because this time, the word became flesh. Where previously God had been present deep within a tent, and and no human being could go near it without dropping dead, with the exception of a high priest who could go once a year into the presence of God. This time when God pitched his tent, he he did it as a baby in a food trough. A baby that anyone from lowly Jewish shepherds to wealthy pagan wise men could come and see and worship. And so I think you begin to see why everyone got so excited that first Christmas. Because God was back. He was available to everyone. And John continues. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now the word see here, the original word, is not talking about a casual glance It is talking about looking deeply at something. John and his friends have looked deeply at Jesus. They've looked deeply at his glory. This is an eyewitness statement. He's giving testimony here that they have seen Jesus, they have seen his glory, and that what they have to say should be believed. We can trust their testimony because they looked deeply. Now, this glory is vital for us to understand. Now, As I highlighted earlier, right, that's one of the two recurring themes of every element of the Christmas story. The Hebrew word for glory that was used throughout the Old Testament describes weightiness. The glory of God is kind of like the sum total of the weight of all of his infinite attributes. So if you're a mathematician, start adding things up. His infinite love, his infinite mercy, His infinite grace, his infinite knowledge, his infinite wisdom, his infinite holiness, his infinite righteousness, his infinite justice. And there's more. Add those infinities up, and you begin to get an idea of the glory of God, his weightiness. And so it's no wonder that in the Old Testament, if you saw the glory of God, you would just drop dead. That was the standard response. You dropped dead. No one could bear to be in the presence of the full glory of God and survive. And and just getting near it would actually kill an ordinary person who had not been properly prepared and cleansed and set aside. 
Now, the Greek word for glory that's used throughout the New Testament is related to outshining, relating to, to brilliant radiance of God's presence, his reputation. And whenever Moses would spend an extended amount of time in the presence of God, his, his face would be shining for a while afterwards, and it would really freak the Israelites out. Uh, they were like, dude, cover that thing up. And that's why the shepherds were so scared that night, because the angel showed up and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is terrifying to them. But know what these verses from John say, right? The disciples have seen his glory. The glory that's just like that of the Father, because as Jesus later says, he and the Father are one. So when Jesus became flesh... When he became that baby in a manger, it became possible for us to see and experience his glory without dropping dead. John saw him. Lots of people saw him. They were in the presence of the eternal word, yet he was in a form where anyone could see him and relate to him. And that's why everyone was so excited that first Christmas night. Now, what is it about that glory that's so special? What is it about it that we should care now, 2,000 years later? Because I think we now understand why the shepherds care. We understand why the wise men care. We understand why the angels would care. We understand why everybody, it was a big deal 2,000 years ago. But why are we here sweating on a Thursday night 2,000 years later? Well, John answered that as the verse continues because he says that the glory... It's full of grace and truth. You see, the answer for us about why we should care about Christmas is in that word, grace. Now, grace was a term that was already in some amount of use in the Greco-Roman world, and it described a gift that you did not earn that was not appropriate for your status compared to the person who was giving it to you who was of a higher status. It describes something you don't deserve. Right? Grace is that gift that we cannot earn and we do not deserve. That is the meaning of the word. So think on that for a moment. Because grace is not a gift you get because you're on the nice list. Grace is the gift you get despite being on the naughty list. So my immediate application for anybody, any child who is listening and has some concern about which list they're on, just go to your list, write the word grace at the top, and you are covered. So what is that gift that we cannot earn that we don't deserve? It's very clear from these passages that I shared with Matthew and Luke, or from Matthew and Luke's account of Christmas. The gift is salvation from sin. That is the number one dominant theme of the Christmas story. Recall Matthew 121. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally meant God saves, or God is salvation. Jesus was named that by God because he was born to bring salvation to people. Remember, remember what the angel told the shepherds, right? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. You see, when Jesus chose to become flesh, when he chose to become a baby, he did it to bring us a gift. A gift that we do not deserve and that we can never earn, no matter how hard we try. 
We don't deserve it because we sin. We do wrong things. And even when we do right things, we're often doing them for the wrong reasons. Truth be told, we all belong on the naughty list. It's just kind of who we are. It's what we do. I mean, we try not to, right? We try to do the right thing in every situation. We do our best, but our best is not good enough. It's Christmas Eve. Let's, let's, be, let's be real. Let's be honest. We fail sometimes. We do the wrong thing. Now, we might convince ourselves that we are a generally good person. But that is completely different from being an absolutely 100% all the time perfect person. I sin. You sin. And we all sin. And the penalty for sin is death. It is eternal separation from a perfect and holy and just God because he cannot permit us into his presence because of our sin. There is no way. And so whether I, it's because I yelled at my kids earlier today or I got angry at somebody who cut me off in traffic or, you know, I, I, I dishonored the name of God or I lied or I cheated or I stole or I hurt someone, whatever it is, whatever it is that you have done, and it's different from what I've done, whatever it is that tempts you to do, and that may not be the same thing that I'm tempted to do, all of it is sin. And all of it disqualifies us from ever being in the presence of a perfect and holy God. But the good news is, God also loves us deeply. Every one of us. He created each of us in his image. And he made us to be in his presence. He created us to be friends with him. You, me, Everyone. We're created to be friends with God. And so when mankind fell into sin and the beauty and perfection of his creation was ruined, God already had a plan. Because he knew what was going to happen. So he had a plan from the moment that sin entered into the world. You can see it for yourself. It begins to unfold in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning. God had a plan to restore his creation back to perfection for his glory. He had a plan to restore the crown jewel of creation. That's you and me. That's all of us. Think on that. We are the crown jewel. Out of all the universe, out of everything, we are the crown jewel of God's creation. And he wanted to bring us back to perfection for his glory. And the plan was to do all the hard work himself by giving grace to those who don't deserve it. That's that's you and me. His plan was to give grace to those who were disqualified by their sins. That's you and me. Regardless whether our sins are small in the eyes of the world or terrible in the eyes of the world, his plan was to give salvation to all who would embrace it and who would say, yes, Lord, I accept your grace. I tear open this gift you're giving me. Please forgive me my sins. God's plan was simple and yet As a father, it's terrible to even contemplate because he sent the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, into the world to become a human being. He sent Jesus to live and to teach and to preach and then to suffer a terrible death on a cross, which is 
about as bad a way to go as you can get. A terrible death that he did not deserve. Because only the infinite, sinless, perfect Son of God would be perfect enough to make an atoning sacrifice for all the guilt of thousands and thousands of years and billions and billions of people. Only the perfect sinless word could be good enough as a sacrifice to cover everyone's sins. Those from people alive 2,000 years ago, those in this room today. And then God raised his son back to life to open the way for everyone who accepts him as Lord and Savior. To just everyone who's willing to tear open that gift of undeserved grace. So that we can live forever in the presence of God. And that first Christmas was when God began to unfold that plan. He had promised it for centuries. People were waiting for it. And it, that was the beginning, that first night. That's what we're remembering. It was quite literally the kickoff of the cosmic Super Bowl. God versus Satan to restore his creation for his glory and honor. That's why we should be excited about Christmas. Because it was D-Day for the beginning of the new kingdom. We get excited about Christmas because it points us to the pivotal moment in the plan. The cross, Easter, the moment when the plan was locked in and it became inevitable that God was going to win this game. When Jesus suffered and died and took all the sin of the world on him, yours and mine, and then rose from the dead in triumph over death and evil. And the plan is still unfolding. Because God's not going to stop until all of his creation is restored. He is, he's not going to stop until all the different people groups of the world have had a chance to hear about Jesus Christ and to make a decision for themselves, whether they're going to embrace him as Lord and Savior and be saved from their sins, or whether they're going to reject him and remain in their sins and death? That's a question that each of us has also either had to make or still needs to make the answer to that question, that choice, that decision. The plan is still unfolding, but the outcome is certain. God will restore his creation to perfection for his glory when Christ returns. It all began on that first Christmas when salvation and glory came together. And that's why we gather here on a Thursday night to remember an event from 2,000 years ago. Now, continuing through the passage, verse 15 uses the testimony of John the Baptist, different from John the Gospel writer, as further evidence for the fact that Jesus was eternal. One of the requirements of the culture was that you could not just accept testimony from one witness, you needed at least two. And so, so far... John, the gospel writer, has given his testimony of the eternal Son of God. And now he adds the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was born before Jesus, right? He's some, some sort of distant relative, maybe a cousin, maybe a little more distant. He'd been born before, and yet the, the complicated construction there, which I have a hard time following in the English, is saying simply this, even though I am older in this world, Jesus predates me. He is eternal. 
And it says that he cried out, he shouted, and it's a shout that has resonated across the centuries. And then we get to our Christmas present. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was full of grace. We've talked about that. He was full of salvation and truth for all of us who confess our sins and accept him as our Lord and Savior. And from that fullness, we have received grace. And it's not just a It is grace upon grace. And the idea here, the concept that the, the writer is communicating, is that of a rapid and perpetual succession of blessings. You see, for those of us who claim the name of Christ as Lord and Savior, we have salvation. Our sins have been forgiven. No matter how terrible they were, our sins are forgiven. We have freedom from enslavement to those sins. We have freedom from enslavement to the pain of our past. We have freedom from the enslavement to the patterns of our old life. We have peace with God. We have, we have friendship with the creator of the universe. We are his sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the eternal word. We have his very presence in our heart to the Holy Spirit. We have strength and power to endure every trial that comes our way. We have joy in the midst of suffering. We have the assurance of God's love in our hearts. And that's why we're gathered here tonight. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you so much for the gift you gave us that first Christmas, the gift of grace that you offer freely to anyone who would tear it open and accept it, regardless of their background, regardless of their condition. So Lord, I pray that if there are any who have not yet found you through Jesus, I pray that they would, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would bring them to accept this gift, to tear it open and embrace salvation For those of us who have already accepted it, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember and to celebrate and to embrace and rejoice in the grace upon grace you shower down upon us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Merry Christmas.